Hello and welcome to this special Pension Protection Fund edition of Pensions Experts fortnightly podcast. At the time of recording, it is about 4pm on Thursday the 8th of October, and a couple of hours ago, the PPF's annual report and accounts was laid down in Parliament, which I can only assume in this modern day and age means being placed in some gilt-edged green leather-bound machine that whips PDF copies of it all around the country. Uh, the picture it paints certainly isn't a terrible one. Investment return has held steady by 5.2%, despite what the report euphemistically calls market turbulence. And I have a more accurate name for it, but it is not repeatable on the air. Uh, the Pension Protection Fund's assets grew from 32.1 billion to 36.1 billion. So good news there as well. But I think my guests would agree, uh, though we will shortly see, uh, that the picture isn't all roses, never mind superior assortments of chocolate. Uh, for instance, the total value of claims identified uh, on the PPF by the appointed actuary is up from an estimated 1,005.1 million in 2019 uh, to 3,046.7 million foreseeable at 31st March 2020. That's an almost threefold increase. Joining us to discuss all that and much more are Lisa McCrory, Chief Actuary at the Pension Protection Fund, and Oliver Morley, Chief Executive of the Pension Protection Fund. Thank you both very much for joining me. Oliver, um, if I can begin with you, this is sort of a chance to begin with just to affirm or otherwise correct my early characterization. Is it fair to describe this as a, a mixed picture, to use the, the horrible cliche? What is the mood over at the PPF? The mood is positive, um, but definitely not complacent. We've coped well through the um, COVID um, crisis. Operations have largely been uninterrupted. We've maintained high levels of customer satisfaction. And thanks to our investment strategy, we are in a good place. We've been largely protected. Our liabilities have definitely been protected. Um, and we've been able to make an investment return through what was a really um, obviously very challenging year. I guess the one thing I would say is that our assets have grown up, grown from 32 to 36 billion, as you say. But of course, that's not all good news because those assets also come from the schemes that uh, arrive with us, not just from our um, investment return. And it also reflects the uh, levy that uh, um, schemes pay. Now, obviously, there's a, we have a mix of income sources, as I just described there. And there is some positive story in that, that as well. But uh, um, we do and have received claims through the years. So it's not all good news when our assets increase. For example, our reserves actually did decrease over the year from 6.1 to 5.1 billion because of the, the challenges from a market point of view. So um, I should say, I, I literally do have a cockerel in <laughs> my garden and it is crowing, which is not hugely helpful. So I apologise for that. But yeah, I, it, it's generally positive, but we're certainly not complacent at all about uh, um, the situation we're in now and obviously things coming up. Excellent. I think that it sounds like the cockerel agrees with you, at least. It's certainly not complacent itself. Just on the subject of the, the reserves, then, as you mentioned, it's down, it says, I think it was 16%, wasn't it? Um, there's still uh, quite a significant amount of money in reserve. Uh, it's 5.1 billion, as, as I recall. Um, but at what point do drops like that start to become concerning? Obviously, that's, that's from March, and things have happened since. But I mean, you presumably are keen to stop that decline becoming a trend. Are you confident in, in so doing? I mean, what point should people begin to be concerned about the, the level of reserves? We, we keep a very close eye, obviously, on the situation. Those reserves are, are built up, so we are in a position to be able to respond to claims. One of the um, elements we look at 
which you know Lisa and the team work extremely hard on is making sure we do have a degree of predictability when it comes to what we call our prob probability of success and that has declined um, it's declined from uh, around 89% to 83% in this uh, um, annual report and that is obviously of concern but I would say it's not reaching the point at which we are really really concerned or in which we feel our strategy is not working the way we would expect it to even given the severe market disruption we've seen is that fair lisa yes definitely and i think you know a lot of the reserves reduction that you talked about did come from the market turbulence that we did see and obviously there has been a, a recovery in the market since our investment strategy is low risk um, and we do hedge all of our interest and inflation risk which means that compared to many pension schemes we've performed very well. The reduction in the probability of success reflects the reduction in our own reserves over the period um, but also the reduction in funding of the schemes that we protect um, and the 7800 is the index that we use to measure how them schemes have performed and we've seen whilst our own investment returns have improved over the year, um, funding in the universe of schemes has remained depressed. Um, but we are a long-term institution. We do expect to see some volatility in our financial position year to year and certainly claims that's what we're here to do. Um, we've got no control over that. So what we are working hard on is making sure that the things that we can control and work on are working and the investment performance over the year um, is something that I think the team should be very proud of given that in them exceedingly difficult times um, we exceeded our benchmark on our asset classes on a one, three and five year period. If I can stick with you, Lisa, for the, for the next one. So I mentioned the other sort of big jump. That was the, the 273, I think it is, percent jump in the total value of claims. Um, and as you're our actuarial expert, I mean, maybe you could um, begin by sort of describing for us the reasons behind that jump, and then we could maybe discuss what the potential consequences of such a, a large figure are. I think you're referring to the contingent liability section in my actuarial report towards the end and actually that isn't an estimation of claims instead that's trying to give an indication of the schemes that we believe are the highest risk of an insolvency event um, and I think it does actually say in the report that it is not an estimate of claims over the next year. We break them contingent liabilities into two groups. Ones where we feel there is a very high chance of insolvency and that number has gone up a bit over the year. And then the second group um, is looking more at those schemes that are in the lowest levy bands or have a a low credit rating and the reason for the jump this year is that there have been a number of downgrades in credit ratings for some of the, the larger schemes that we protect um, but even still we wouldn't expect all them schemes to ultimately end up on a claim on the PPL. If I move on then to the um, maybe I think if I could ask a couple of questions about the levy we know obviously that the, the PPF cut its levy estimate by 100 million for 2021-22 and I gather that was quite a welcome move. And part of the reason for not going, as I understand it, any further forward in time than that is, is to maintain flexibility. Oliver, if I can turn to you for this, um, LCP partner John Wolfe told us that the move represents a conscious decision by the PPF, or a decision at least, 
to keep the strain of tackling the pandemic and the, the intended consequences off of the levy and placing it instead on the long-term funding target, which he suggests is, is therefore suffering a reduced probability of, of reaching the long-term funding target. Is his assessment a fair one? Not entirely. I mean, it is really a question of balance, isn't it? And, and, and that's what we're trying to achieve when it comes to the levy. We're also very conscious that the levy is obviously a charge upon schemes and so we don't want to be in a position where we are really drawing in excess of what we would consider to properly reflect risk in the market. Now based on based on our view and our, our, our expectation of risk in, in the market currently we are in the view that we are in a position where we can reduce levy but we are very conscious, and this is what we're flagging up more generally, is, is, is that that risk, the expectation of that risk, is that it may well increase next year. I mean, uh, you know, there are scenarios, I suppose, under which the economy booms and, and actually that, that doesn't happen. But we, as you said right at the start of the, of the podcast, there's a lot of uncertainty about and um, a lot of volatility and expectations and we want to be able to give people a, a, as clear a signal on levy as we can at the moment, but also reflect some of the um, uh, performance and risk that we've seen over the last year. And is, is that the trade-off then? Because, of course, uncertainty is one thing, but by not going any further ahead than 2021 20, it's very difficult, surely, for pension schemes to make any long-term plans themselves. So, of course, you need the flexibility to respond to the uncertainty of our current condition. But on the other hand, it's very difficult for others on the outside to make any long-term plans themselves. Does it not almost add an element of uncertainty itself? Would that be a, a fair criticism? Yeah, although I think we are incredibly transparent, probably in a way that most, well, almost no other charges are in, in, in normal life. You know, we try and communicate as much as we possibly can around levy, help people understand and, and help schemes and advisors understand exactly how we're operating, what our thinking is, and we're very, very clear it's driven by risk. So in the end, you know, the, the, the really simple way to reduce or, or not, depending on circumstances, but the way to reduce your levy is to make sure that you are a relatively low risk sponsor. So we think that uh, although we have taken away some of the certainty by uh, keeping next year open, I, I think, to be honest, uh, most people would, would forgive us that. Um, we hope that we've made up with it by having some real transparency. And, and Lisa, if I can turn to you for this one, obviously the levy's already been cut once and it can only, as I understand it, be cut by 25% year on year without legislative approval. If the purpose of not going further than 2021-22 is to achieve flexibility, but actually there is an element of being hamstrung by the proceeding, the, the 25% limit and all the rest of it, does that flexibility really exist? And, and is it sufficient to counterbalance any future underperformance that these still uncertain times we, we live in might produce? Is there still room to go further, I suppose, is the, the short form version of the question. I guess um, the 25% cap year on year is legislative on the upside and it's a policy decision on the downside. And I guess also the thing to remember, as I said before, is our liabilities are very long term in nature. So we are, we don't need to react initially to things that happen in the short term. We do have time to consider how things might play out in the future. And I guess that's what our levy decision this year reflects. Yes, things are uncertain, but we can 
wait and see what unfolds over the next year, two years, um, and adjust their strategy if necessary on the back of that. Excellent. And, and one more view, if I may, on the subject of the levy. Um, I think, if I remember rightly, that there was the prospect of quite a significant number of insolvencies touted in the recent levy consultation. And, and of course, you've got the flexibility having not you know, set the levy any further ahead than 2021, 20, 22. But of the insolvencies that may start to hit, maybe in 2022, 20, 23, what scale of those are we looking at? I mean, how wide a range of scenarios are you modelling? It's very difficult to estimate claims. I think there's a couple of components to it. First, you have to estimate what number of schemes are likely to go insolvent. And then with that, you have to be able to project what the underfunding is going to be in them schemes. And that's incredibly tricky to do. And I think a good example of that is when you look at our claims experience this year. Um, compared to last. Last year, we had the lowest number of claims we ever seen, um, 23. Um, however, it was also accompanied by one of the, the largest claims in our history, probably the largest. Um, whereas this year, claims by number have gone up to 38. Um, however, the actual deficit they brought with them was less than 0 0.3 billion. And so I guess really the 7800 index measures the underfunding and the schemes that we protect. But, you know, it really will depend on what schemes in the universe are ultimately the ones that come our way. Um, there are some big deficits out there. Uh, they tend to be associated with the larger schemes, fortunately, the lower risk schemes. Um, so it's very difficult at this stage to say where claims will end up although we are monitoring the situation. I always say it's like a conveyor belt, basically. And, you know, the, you can predict with some accuracy the frequency and number of, of parcels that are coming along the line, but you can't predict how big they'll be. Well, I'm, I'm going to stubbornly stick with the, the attempting to make you make predictions for me. Um, very difficult <laughs> to make predictions, as someone said, especially about the future, but we'll um, do our best. So if we are looking ahead, and I know, Oliver, that you mentioned in your, the foreword uh, to the report that we're not out of danger yet. There's still an awful lot of uncertainty, as we've previously discussed, about the pandemic and the economic recovery. And besides the things we talked about already, the, the claims, the decrease in reserves and the levy questions, there's the change in RPI, which is potentially coming along. To the, to the consumer price index, including housing. And that, I think, by some estimates, could cost about 600 million if it comes in in 2030, uh, more than that if it comes in any earlier than that. Is that a, a problem that, that you are sort of forefront in your mind at the moment, or is that sort of taking the backseat uh, in terms of tackling the, the more pressing issues of coronavirus? How serious a, a challenge does the change in the index represent? It's a significant concern. And we have responded to the government's consultation on the timing of the RPI CPI change. And we've been fairly clear about our concerns on it and the financial impact that will be uh, that will be there. Um, I'm sure Lisa can can say more on this, but we are effectively CPI focused. And uh, but obviously we need to be able to use RPI financial instruments to be able to do that and ensure we've properly hedged our liabilities and so it is without doubt a challenge for us. Lisa did you want to, to come in on that? As Oliver said um, we're probably one of the institutions that will be most impacted um, because 
central to our investment strategy is that we hedge our interest and inflation risk. So we fully hedge our interest exposure and we do that by holding RPI assets. So any change in the determination of RPI would impact in our assets but have no corresponding impact on our liabilities. So yes, as it is set out in a report, and my report is an area of risk to your balance sheet, but again, you know, in the grand context of our total balance sheet, it would be something that we would be able to accommodate within our funding strategy um, and wouldn't really be an area of concern for us hitting our targets at the moment. And does, does the same uh, conclusion, I suppose you could say, uh, apply also to the uh, verdicts in the cases uh, during the rounds of the courts at the moment? You've got the, the compensation cap verdict, the Bauer judgment and things. I mean, those have some potential, I suppose, financial implications. But I mean, would you be confident as well that they don't represent too significant uh, a challenge? I would say the challenges from them are definitely more operational than financial. So there's a couple of judgments doing the rounds at the moment as you say and so for example we have already included some provision for the cost of the Hampshire judgment in our liabilities Um, so again that's a relatively low number of members and low financial impact the Bauer judgment um, again we expect that to impact a small number of people but complexity wise that's quite a big job to do Um, and we're working very closely with DWP at the moment to formulate our plans for taking that forward. Oliver did you want to to add anything to that comment? Yeah I mean I think in 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 the wider context yes there are are a series of judgments which are affecting I mean wider scheme valuation as as well and I think you know, it is a it is a real challenge for us all as an industry is working out how to how to respond to them. And uh, um, from our point of view, these these judgments are logistically really difficult to do because they require you to, I mean, in, from the simplest point of view, effectively go back to long-standing arrangements and work out how best to respond to the judgment in a way that uh, um, the courts expect. And, and that is really challenging. Okay, in which case, moving on finally, um, I'll, I'll do one more. We usually at this stage in the, the proceedings, we do an always a pensions angle, which is an unusual story with an unexpected pensions connection. I will not jump you now with the, the requirement. If something comes to mind, by all means, throw it in. But otherwise, in, in lieu of that, I thought I'd just sort of close by looking forward, uh, getting a sense of, of how optimistic we should be that the, the PPF's wide range of countermeasures, they're all on display at the moment in the uh, report that's, that's gone through Parliament. You know, it's reacting daily uh, to the new economic turmoil that we face. Are the array of uh, countermeasures available to the PPF sufficient to get you through the, for example, the, the reasonable worst case scenario with all of these things we've discussed previously, all of the challenges you're facing? Would you be optimistic that you have the tools at your disposal uh, to come out of this looking as healthy as anyone can? That's definitely a question for the chief actuary, but I'm I'm willing to uh, um, <laughs> and CFO. I'm willing to I'm willing to speak as well. <laughs> well, I'm pretty confident that we're in good shape. In fact, I'll go even further. I'm very confident the the PPF is in good financial shape. We have had a lot to deal with 
this year in terms of the pandemic and there's certainly a lot of uncertainty out there but that's fundamentally what our funding strategy was there to do um, was to help us build up a reserve so that we would have sufficient assets whenever difficult times came and we're very early on our journey we'll be paying pensioners for a very long time and the PPF will be growing for a very long time. So there is plenty of time to react in a proportionate and a controlled way should things get worse. Sounds encouraging to me. Oliver, any final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would absolutely back what Lisa said, but it's also, you know, there's a degree of of making sure that the organisation is is fit across the board to be able to deal with this kind of climate. And we haven't talked about it, but, you know, if you look at our annual report, you can see we're making improvements all the time in terms of efficiency. So around cost per member, we saved uh, close to 10% and we added a huge number of members last year as well and we maintain high levels of customer satisfaction even though a lot of our customer service and and we're carrying along um, uh, even though our customer service now is entirely done remotely so it is just making sure that we are really fit for whatever future is out there and that we feel that we are giving both members potential future members and also levy payers good value for money and i think we are doing that Glad to hear it. In which case, I think that does bring us to the end of this programme. So thank you both, uh, Oliver and Lisa, for joining me today. The podcast will, as ever, be back in around two weeks' time. And of course, you please should spread it like a virus, if not the coronavirus itself. Like, subscribe, share, do all of that for us. We'd be very much appreciative. Um, And we will see you in two weeks' time. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.